This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Recently, have scholars outside the historical profession identified progressivism for what it was and continues to be a fundamental rupture with the roots of American order? So writes the political scientist and theorist Bradley C.S. Watson in his 2020 book, Progressivism The Strange History of a Radical Idea. Watson provides an intellectual history of how historians such as Richard Hofstetter tended to underplay what a radical break the progressive movement was from American constitutionalism. The book shows that only in recent decades have political theorists entered the fray and rendered clear how dire the ramifications for American society and culture the views on the constitution of such figures as Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson were, and what a massive break they were from the legacy of the founders and such advocates of natural rights as Abraham Lincoln. Anyone interested in how American political history was written in the period of roughly 1940 to 1980 should read this book. Should anyone interest, so should anyone interested in the differences between the views of historians and political scientists on the same developments. And this is not just a matter of the mindsets of various fields of scholarship. These debates shaped public policy and affected a host of issues such as the rise of the administrative state and the role of expertise in governance, the place of religion, Christianity first and foremost in American life, and the ideology-dependent staffing of the ranks of college social science departments, government entities, and other key institutions. All of these developments filtered out to the rest of society. Watson helps us to understand what the progressives, including politicians, academics, and theologians such as Walter Rauschenbusch of the period of roughly 1900 to 1930 actually said and wrote versus what historians in the decade shortly thereafter said they said. Let's hear from Professor Watson himself. Good morning. Good morning. I was just going to say good morning. And, and by the time it disappears, it could be a good evening or good afternoon, depending where everyone in the world who listens is, is, is says. I just want to say my name is Hope J. Lehman. I'm one of the hosts of the New Books Network. And I'm talking today with Bradley C.S. Watson, the author of the 2020 book, Progressivism, The Strange History of a Radical Idea. And thank you for joining us today, Brad. I appreciate your, your eagerness and willingness to, to get rolling. It's a pleasure to be with you, Hope. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you very much. And just before we were we came on air, I was discussing with you the matter of disciplines, and that's a very important fact in your book. I'd like to read on that topic what the what your publisher, the University of Notre Dame Press, says of your book. It says, in progressivism, the strange history of a radical idea, Bradley Sietz Watson presents an intellectual history of American progressivism as a philosophical political phenomenon focusing on how and what, with what consequences the academic discipline of history came to accept and propagate it. The book offers a meticulously detailed historiography and critique of the insularity and biases of academic culture. 
Now, I'd like to break that down a bit. Your book is an intellectual history of political of progressivism and a critique of American historians' relationship with progressivism. And you yourself, interesting, are not a historian, but a political scientist and authority on political philosophy, correct? That's correct, yes. Could you discuss a little matter that matter of academic disciplines and what and what motivated you to write the book? Yes, I mean it's uh, it's uh, an interesting phenomenon. I think uh, how historians themselves no longer uh, show much interest in uh, what's usually referred to as historiography. That is to say, the story of how history is written. Right. Um, this uh, has fallen, uh, you know, by the wayside. I think as the discipline of history has become well, shall we say, more politicized, more concerned with, uh, you know, fashionable trends in social history and so forth. And a number of, um, you know, my friends and colleagues for many years have been talking about the progressive phenomenon as a critique of the founders' constitution, how the early progressives really attacked, really tried to um, undermine, uh, deny the... Um, deny both the utility and, in a sense, the veracity of the, of the founders' uh, constitutional teachings, and how the historians of the uh, 20th century, who were the main sort of expositors of the progressive uh, intellectual synthesis, uh, really missed this uh, fundamental fact about progressivism. It's constitutional critique. It's sort of fundamentally, uh, let's say, un-American character from the point of view of the founder's constitution. And political uh, theorists in my circles had been talking about that for a long time. And, um, you know, we were kind of aware in a general sense that uh, there was a gap in the uh, in uh, in historiography, in, in how historians had dealt with this. And uh, I just decided at some point that, um, you know, no book, no study has ever been written on this, why the historians miss this fundamental phenomenon. So I, I kept thinking to myself, uh, you know, somebody needs to write that book. And then at some point I thought, uh oh, that somebody is going to be me. So here, here I am, a simple country political philosopher, as I like to call myself, writing a uh, history, and in particular, a history of how historians uh, dealt with what is in many ways the central uh, sort of moral political phenomenon of American life over the past hundred years or so. That is to say, the progressive uh, assault on the founders' constitution and its enduring implications. Well, if you're a simple country political philosopher, you're a pretty distinguished political country political philosopher. You're well, you're well esteemed, you're esteemed in your field. But I'd like to, I'd like to ask. Well, on on that point, when these, when you say they missed it, is that a, a kind way of saying they were deliberately underplaying, or what? How? And also, how could they have missed it? Because it's not, it's not as though Woodrow Wilson's views on the Constitution were hiding in some deep dark tomb somewhere they were they were published and well known and very well articulated could you explain a were they were the historians deliberately mis downplaying it and why or b how could they have if they did miss it out of all good faith how could they have missed it yeah that's a very good question and it is a kind of um central question of my book and i begin the book with uh noting that um, human beings in general, it's a, it's a well-known psychological phenomenon, but and this applies also to academics, tend to see what they're looking for. There's a kind of, uh, you know, natural confirmation bias at work. That is, uh, you know, the tendency of investigators, observers to seek and elevate that which confirms their pre-existing hypotheses. And I think that professional academics, even though they're nominally dedicated to objectivity, as I say in the book, they, they're not really immune to this kind of professional uh, deformation or sort of 
uh, capture by professional uh, interests. And the, the fact of the matter is, uh, when the discipline of history, the modern sort of American discipline of history was founded, as it were, in the United States, that is to say, with the establishment of the American Historical Association in the late 19th century, um, the the early historians were themselves the products of, you might say, the fundamental tenets, the driving force of progressive thinking. They were very much oriented to evolutionary uh, categories. They were very, uh, therefore, suspicious of uh, the idea of natural rights, The that is to say, the understanding of rights which underlay the founder's constitution. Um, so the discipline of history from its birth, that is to say, you know, professional history, as it uh, has come to be uh, seen in American uh, universities and institutions over the 20th century, uh, was kind of progressive in its orientations. Therefore, I think the historians, um, some of them consciously, but some of them unconsciously, simply could not see, or if they did see, they could not take seriously the Founders' Constitution in its dedication to natural rights. They were speaking the language of um, you know, contemporary progressivism, i.e. Darwinian evolution, uh, uh, sort of Hegelian historical progress, uh, pragmatism, the idea that everything is in flux, everything is experimental, right? The idea of a constitution based in natural rights thinking, uh, natural law thinking, i.e. things that do not change come what may, you know, moral truths like uh, the fact that uh, all men are created equal was completely alien to them. So they either, um, you know, consciously or unconsciously did not make that uh, part of their inquiry, even though, as you say, I mean, the major progressive thinkers like Woodrow Wilson were kind of telegraphing this. They were telegraphing their hostility to the founders' constitution, uh, their suspicion of natural rights. But when you read the 20th century, the bigwig 20th century historians, as I call them, people like uh, Richard Hofstadter and Arthur Schlesinger Jr. and and, and, uh, and many others, um, some of them are, are familiar to the general public, right? The general reading public, they published uh, many books um, unfolding uh, American history in the 20th century, including the history of progressivism. They just did not seem to be uh, aware of the depth of the constitutional critique that the progressives had launched, even though the progressives themselves, as I say, were kind of screaming it from the rooftops. And it's a fascinating phenomenon to see historians not talk about this. It is, yeah. And getting getting to the, I was going to ask you about what do you mean by the word strange? You just used it. Could you explain what you mean by strange? Just the fact that is it bizarre that they did that they lacked this basic understanding of of the constitution or or was it and what 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 do you mean by strange i guess yes i mean the, the strange history of a radical idea uh, is the subtitle of the of the book and uh, i mean the radical idea is um i mean to put the progressive idea as i deal with it in the book in simple terms is that the principled american constitutionalism of fixed natural rights and uh, limited and dispersed powers has to be overturned and replaced by an organic evolutionary model of the constitution that facilitates the authority of experts to experts um, you know, dedicated to the expansion of the public sphere and political control, especially at the national level. Uh, and you know, particularly the expansion of national uh, power over people's lives. That's the, um, that's the radical idea, right? The, the idea that um, uh, the, the progressive idea that the founders constitution is at best a quaint anachronism and what we really need to do is centralize uh, power. So it's a very strange idea from the point of view of, um, of the founders constitution. And when the progressive historians of the mid 20th century start talking about this, 
their histories miss that fundamental radicalism. So their histories, in a way, are all uh, strange, if you will, in ways that the progressive historians don't always seem to be aware of. And maybe in some cases, they're consciously dissembling. But in many cases, I think, as I said earlier, they are simply so much under the sway of progressive thought themselves that they can't see this. So if you read the major historical treatments and the major historians of the 20th century, this central phenomenon uh, is invisible, or if it's mentioned, it uh, it's mentioned so in, in passing so casually that somehow, uh, you know, it barely leaves an imprint on the reader's mind. So it's very, very strange to read these histories that miss this central phenomenon. Well, you mentioned the word expertise, and I was going to ask you one thing that struck me in your critique of the progressive historians is they're both ignorant and arrogant in that they 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 vaunt they value and tout the importance of uh, expertise, but it's not as though Alexander Hamilton and James Madison were idiots and did not understand the workings of government or and were were themselves ex, experts in their fields and of the day is that did they did they just dis, or or Abraham Lincoln for that matter did they just not know that or did they dismiss it or or what yeah i think i think for the most part the progressives are dismissive of um of let's say the political wisdom of the founders and uh, people like uh, Lincoln the great statesman of the american tradition because they are suspicious of essentially the Republican foundations of America, what they have confidence in. And you see this today, uh, you know, in um, in contemporary political liberalism, what they have confidence in is the power of, um, you know, administrative experts, uh, people who are not um, beholden, let's say, to the um, to the Republican sentiments of uh, American citizens. The founders, of course, were trying to create a small r Republican constitution, i.e. Uh, a large republic wherein the consent of the governed would be registered in various ways, the informed consent of the governed. Uh, Woodrow Wilson points out that um, this to allow that governing body, the, to allow the sovereign people to get too involved in the details of administration, he says, is like allowing rustics to handle delicate machinery, right? That sort of condescending uh, understanding of the sovereign people as uh, rustics who just aren't going to be able to handle this. That sort of, um, uh, you know, I tend to think of it as a kind of hubris or, or, or arrogance, I think is visible very much in, uh, in uh, contemporary liberalism, which is kind of the natural outgrowth, I think, of early 20th century uh, progressivism, the idea that the people can't really be trusted. So we need experts, not in the founding sense, not in the Hamiltonian sense, right, or the uh, Madisonian sense of um, designers of constitutional uh, elaborate and uh, you know very um, amazing constitutional uh, mechanisms to register consent not not kind of political wisdom of that sort but expertise in the sense of running the details of the administrative state that's the kind of uh, expertise they value and it's a it's a non-consensual expertise it's a non-republican uh, expertise and that has been a consistent theme I think of American politics for the past uh, hundred years the elevation of that idea of consent of uh, expertise at the expense of the consent of the people. It's, it's very it's very striking because the fact that 
two of the figures that you meant that we've covered, Hamilton and Lincoln, were probably some of the best administrators in the history of the world. In terms of it's it's amazing that they would the the, the progressives would hold up Woodrow Wilson, who had he was a, he was a, he was very he was very skillful, but it but he was not as though he was of of Hamilton's seminal. Uh, yes, <laughs> Wilson, of course, is is one of the originators of modern American progressive thought, and to some extent, uh, implementers of it as uh, as president. And he was a very uh, intelligent man, and he wrote extensively, including um, you know essays and longer works on the science, the modern science of administration. But by the time uh, Wilson is writing this in the late nineteenth uh, century, of course, the modern science of administration is being uh, elevated by the uh, progressives, um, as you know, mo the modern modern political science is is it was founded by progressives as well. The notion that um, uh, you know any 18th century constitution is of necessity kind of outdated, outmoded, and must be replaced, overcome by the new scientific understandings of things. Right. So the um, those who studied politics were trying to hitch politics is wagon to the star, if you will, of natural science. They wanted it to appear, you know, as scientific as, say, physics or something, and they thought they could do that. And in the course of this, uh, you know, they have to elevate, um, you know, the new kind of experts, not the statesman-like experts of the founding era, but uh, those who have been trained in the new evolutionary methodologies, you know, those who come out of the universities, basically, the modern university. Yeah, again, their arrogance is clear in terms of we those dunderheaded people who didn't understand science, like Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> right, 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 right. But I'd like to ask in terms of, of terminology, in the book you, you refer to revisionist scholarship. And is that a term in, in, in is that a term in general use in the progressive history? Or or who 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 are they? Are you are you founding that or are you or joining an already or existing historical historical historiographical stream. <laughs> yes, I, um, I I refer to the uh, the revisionist scholarship that started to push back against this historical consensus. I.e., you know, the historical consensus again being there's kind of nothing to see here in the progressive movement, right? The progressive movement is, according to the main historians of the 20th century, is a kind of warm and fuzzy social phenomenon that didn't really fundamentally criticize, let's say, the founders' uh, regime. It was more about, you know, reform at the margins, um, you know, making, um, you know, labor laws, making some some people went so far as to say, Richard Hofstadter went so far as to say it was a kind of psychological uh, reaction of the uh, of the gentry, the middle and sort of gentry classes to uh, you know instabilities in the early twentieth century due to rapid industrialization and things like this. Uh, so, in other words, it's a psychological reductionism, right? And but it, almost none of them see progressivism's very radical critique, the dagger that it launches at the heart of the founders' um, um, constitution. So, it's the revisionists, in in my telling who begin to push back against this sort of consensus of liberal historiography. And they start to do this only in the sort of very late uh, 20th century. These revisionists are associated with, a, with what I call uh, the Claremont School of, um, of political theory, a number of, uh, a number of um, 
scholars who started to assemble in Claremont, California, uh, associated with Claremont McKenna College, the uh, Claremont uh, Graduate University, and uh, later the uh, independent Claremont Institute, um, started to um, realize that and started to um, make arguments that uh, the progressives really were under the sway of a radical philosophy of history, which was contrary to the founders' natural rights republicanism. And I, um, you know, sort of came out, I, I did my graduate work in Claremont, my PhD there, I sort of came out of that, uh, what I call revisionist camp. So revisionist in the sense of um, largely political theorists really starting to push back against uh, the, the complacent, uh, you know, historian's account, if you will, of the significance of uh, progressivism. But that's a phenomenon, as I say, of the very late 20th century from uh, about the, uh, you know, 1980s, 1990s onward. And, and now there have been a number of people who have come out of Claremont or been very influenced by the Claremont School. Uh, they're at a variety of uh, uh, places across the country. A number of them are concentrated, in fact, at Hillsdale College, where I now currently teach. Yeah, so I noticed your, 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 the foreword of your book is by Charles Kessler, who's one of the leading uh, historians of the Constitution. Or is that correct? Or is he, is he a political scientist? He's a, he's a, uh, he's a political theorist. Yes. So he is, um, you know, uh, one of the uh, early people in this uh, revisionist movement. Uh, a number of us, including uh, me, uh, studied with, uh, with Charles. And uh, so he was an important uh, sort of intellectual influence on uh, this now burgeoning group of revisionist uh, scholars who, as I say, have influenced um, people at a variety of institutions. Uh, I'd like to ask what, for the, for the, for the listener, why is it important that we understand that the, what was, go why the, the fact that the progressive historians were underplaying this, what, what were the ramifications of that? Yeah. Um, the growth, which has been commented on also by um, you know a lot of uh, scholars associated with Claremont and other institutions, the growth of what's come to be known as uh, the administrative state, uh, particularly at the uh, at the national level, the that is to say, um, a uh, the main point of contact in many ways of people with their government, you know, starting after the Progressive Era has been with the uh, bureaucracy, right? Those who, when you think of the origins of the word bureaucracy, it literally means rule from the desk, uh, from the French, right? Those who simply rule by, uh, you know, administrative or bureaucratic diktat. That is sort of, in way, many ways, the main point of contact of Americans with their government, not with the Republican institutions of their government, not with their state or, or certainly national legislators. But, um, you know, we are all sort of now beholden to these purported experts in agencies and bureaucracies who generate rules and regulations that we now um, don't understand the origins of. We just know that we have to comply with them or else kind of thing. Um, I think has been a direct outgrowth of the um, dominance of this progressive thinking, this rejection of the founders' Republican constitution. And to the extent the historians hid that, they have um, hidden from the American people the degree to which uh, their government does not operate to any extent uh, within the constitutional bounds uh, established by the, by the founders. So there are very large-scale practical consequences to not understanding the story of progressivism. And of course, 
um, the story of progressivism is still not being taught either at the K-12 level or at uh, universities and colleges, largely because, you know, the historians, as I say, complacent uh, uh, analysis has been the uh, the dominant uh, one. It's, uh, you know, the historians engaged in what I call a kind of a complicity of understatement, I yes, think. Yes, I thought that was a very striking phrase in your book. I underline <laughs> right. that. So. Right. So, um, so it's, it's very important, practically speaking, for how American uh, politics has, has played out, the growth, the massification of the administrative state, uh, especially at the national level. And increasingly, as we are seeing nowadays, it, it's worth mentioning the... Um, the undermining, the encroachments on fundamental liberties, including, uh, you know, freedom of conscience, uh, religious liberty by the uh, the organs of the administrative state. Um, and we just haven't had a good accounting of um, how and why this uh, came to be. So uh, it has great practical consequences. It's not just an intellectual pastime to say, look, you know, the historians were pretty suspect in the way they wrote uh, the history of American politics, American political development in the 20th century, it really has enormous practical consequences. I think it was interesting in your book, you made the point that some of the first historians of progressivism were themselves progressives, and they were they were creating it. You mentioned Frederick Jackson Turner, for example, in the American Historical Association. I think he was one, either the, the first president or one of the founders of it. Could you talk about about what 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 did, what were they at with their formation of history and their their relationship to progressivism? Yeah, some of the very early uh, historians, um, very influential historians of the early twentieth century, people like Frederick Jackson Turner and uh, uh, Charles and Mary Beard, um, they were self consciously they were aware that they were progressives, I think, that they understood themselves to be part of the progressive intellectual movement. And they, you know, laid the groundwork for um, criticizing the Founders Constitution. They understood, I think, perfectly well uh, the extent to which they were criticizing. Beard famously, you know, said the Founders Constitution was enough, nothing more than a uh, than an effort to preserve, if you will, the class interests of, of the uh, of the framers. So they, you know, again, the 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 idea of of natural rights or principled moral grounding of the Constitution disappears in his account. But um, he was very aware that he was he was doing that, criticizing the founders' Constitution. The interesting thing, from my point of view, is the historians who come about a generation after those early twentieth century self consciously progressive, uh, you know, historians. Uh, the people like the Richard Hofstadters and Arthur Schlesingers um, and many others that are less well known. Um, these people, I think, did not understand themselves so self-consciously to be giving a progressive narrative or creating a progressive narrative. They understood themselves to be kind of academic historians uh, of, of the kind that any of us who went to college and university in the in the 20th century were very familiar with, right? You'd run across these um, sort of professional historians who, in some sense, uh, you know, wanted to be doing, I think, objective history. But it's those people, I think, who are less conscious of the extent to which they are were fundamentally shaped, formed, their entire discipline was formed by uh, this progressive critique of the Founders' Constitution. So, they're the ones who claim to be doing something close to objective uh, history, but in fact, they are distorting the very um, history. They're part of the movement that they are describing is the way uh, is the way I put it. So when you say when you say the progressive movement, 
uh, could you distinguish between the progressive movement in its heyday versus the the just the time that the historians are writing about because many of them were writing in the in the during the the, the, the depression and the new deal and, and arthur schlesinger was was that was very prominent in the kennedy administration for example but yes that's right so the um early 20th century um late 19th early 20th century progressivism uh has a, a couple of aspects one is the uh the the, the part of it that you read about most, I think, uh, in in the history books, is the um, reformist parts, the practical reformist parts, right? Uh, um, labor laws, uh, regulatory commissions, things like this, to try and deal with uh, some some of the disruptions caused by you know rapid industrialization, the growth of uh, large corporations, all the kinds of things that we associate with. The sort of uh, you know the end of what's sometimes called the robber baron era and the, the beginning of what's uh, known as the of the progressive era. So there's a kind of movement progressivism for legal reforms. But the more important uh, manifestation of progressivism, I think, and the one that I am most interested in, and the ones that the the one that the political revisionist uh, political theorists are interested in, is the sort of intellectual uh, part of that um, progressive movement which embraced a number of you know philosophic uh, concepts uh, that were quite alien i think to the founders thinking i've mentioned um, social darwinism the belief that everything including uh, you know human beings constitutions all things of human creation are in a constant state of evolutionary flux and they must be or die so this essentially uh, sweeps from the table any concern for natural rights or, or natural law, which, you know, are, are about things that don't change. So there's that evolutionary component. I mentioned pragmatism, which is a distinctly American philosophy, very uh, popular, growing in the late 19th, early 20th uh, centuries, emphasizing, you know, sort of experimentation, while well, the name kind of signals what it uh, what it's about, right? Sort of being pragmatic, uh, not uh, taking, not being interested in metaphysical absolutes, but just how things play out in practice. There was also a lot of Germanic state theory, the idea that from Hegel and other German thinkers, the idea that, uh, you know, the state is moving through time and any constitution that attempts to slow that movement is necessarily going to get in the way of necessary uh, uh, change. So these are the intellectual development uh, uh, sort of aspects of uh, progressivism, which I think are very central to the uh, unfolding of um, of American history in the, in the 20th century. Now, the New Deal, of course, I think grows out of it's given intellectual fuel by that by those sort of um, uh, intellectual dimensions of uh, of progressivism uh, you, what you see in the new deal is a kind of movement from progressive ideas to progressive political practice if you will through the creation of you know plethora of permanent agencies programs uh with experts in charge fdr's brain trust and so forth and the Early progressive historians like uh, Arthur Schlesinger, of course, are apologists for. They are defenders of the uh, of the New Deal. They don't always see it as growing directly out of progressivism, as, as I do, but they are defenders of it. They're very confident of the power of uh, of experts and central control to manage an increasingly uh, you know large and complex uh, economy. So, you know, the mid twentieth century progressive historians are very comfortable in their. Um, in their embrace of something that uh, 
you know, the progressives of only a generation before understood to be something very radical, or, you know, a major change in American governing institutions. And the progressive historians are sort of on board with it, and they don't even see the uh, the depth of that uh, of that critique. They don't see those intellectual dimensions of progressivism. And that's very true of later historians. You, you discuss Gabriel Golko, for example, who many of he's an example of. Not only does he not see it, he doesn't care. <laughs> he doesn't see it. It seems like yeah. The um, I mean, it, it, yeah. The the Gabriel Kalko and and uh, William Appleman uh, Williams. These are. Um, sort of major uh, American historians on the Marxist or quasi-Marxist uh, left, they are more, you know, they differ a little bit from the consensus historians like Hofstadter and, and Schlesinger, who kind of emphasize that, you know, America has a kind of liberal tradition, progressivism was an adaptation to circumstances, it wasn't a fundamental critique. Uh, the the radical left historians who start to gain prominence in the 60s and, and 1970s, um, they see progressivism as an attempt by the forces essentially of capital, as you might expect from, you know, Marxist or, or quasi-Marxist thinkers. The uh, progressivism is an, ex is, a, is an effort to reassert or maintain fundamental control by the forces of capitalism. If, uh, you know, if religion is the opiate of, of, of the masses, it kind of keeps the people in line, according to Marx. American progressivism, uh, you know, kind of keeps the people in line. It offers minor concessions, but it fundamentally, you know, preserves the capitalist uh, system. So in a way, they too don't see what the progressives are uh, proclaiming, that um, the Founders Constitution really is hostile to this uh, this uh, progressive th synthesis right it's all just an effort to maintain a corrupt capitalist system in, in the views of of the uh, you know the the marxist uh, historians of the 1960s and 70s so um they're all telling the same story with different degrees i would say of uh, leftist orientation if that makes sense this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yes, yeah, it's fascinating. So I think it was was it Daniel Aaron or one of your historians that you that basically said there was no such thing as progressivism, which was a fascinating. He just denied that it ever existed, saying that they were just another conservative. They were just simply conservative, which in some ways is true that Hoover Hoover was a, also a conservative in a way, but he was also a very, very much a progressive figure. And could you discuss that the idea of denying that there was ever such and how could they even say that it just seems so it was obviously there was a progressive there was a progressive there was the bull moose party it was called the progressive party it was not like they didn't exist yeah this is an interesting it's an interesting phenomenon too there are a number I, I of historians i'm sorry i'm going to correct myself was the bull moose party called the progressive party or what what was the correct the progressives or the bull moosers yeah yeah um uh, the um, there was a political party, there was a convention, right, in, in, in 1912. So it wasn't like, um, you know, it wasn't there as, as a real political movement led by um, Teddy Roosevelt. But um, what you uh, what you see by, you know, sort of 
the later part of the uh, 20th century, by the 1970s, you get certain historians coming along and saying that progressivism never existed, right? That it was, um, and the argument is something like this, that it was so multifarious, there were so many um, elements that it is impossible to characterize it as being anything in particular. So these are the historians who like to um, look at the trees, but they're, they're so focused on the trees, they're incapable of seeing the forest, right? And a lot of history is, is written like this, right? It's a, it's a collection of trees with no um, bigger picture. So these historians come along um, and actually say that progressivism never existed in the sense of being a coherent uh, phenomenon. Now, the elements that make it coherent and enduringly significant, in my view, and in view of the um, you know, the sort of revisionist accounts, as I say, largely, not exclusively, but largely from the discipline of um, political theory. Uh, what we see in it, uh, which really makes it coherent, are the elements I mentioned uh, earlier, the uh, the Darwinian evolutionary categories, it's, it's pragmatic experimental uh, orientation, it's confidence in expertise, it's no, it's importation of a foreign German state theory, the, uh, the growth of the natural growth of the administrative state, all of these are um, are central to the thinking of major of, of the major progressives, not only political actors like Woodrow Wilson, but other uh, sort of intellectual originators of progressivism, uh, and really have um, significant uh, implications. So I think, again, the historians just miss this. The historians, of course, are not political theorists. There's some kind of maybe disciplinary blindness there, but it's more, I think, that... Um, they are so used to thinking in, let's say, evolutionary categories. They're so used to um, working in, in a world which denies there are such things as eternal truths, eternal verities, that um, they cannot conceive that, uh, you know, a constitution dedicated to those things was uh, somehow real and the founders meant what they said and that they set up a government uh, to preserve uh, natural rights through separation of powers, limitation of government powers, right? They are suspicious of all these things. So they, it's almost as if they cannot, um, uh, you know, imagine there is an alternate uh, universe. And when the progressives proclaim these things, they're, they seem as as American as apple pie to these historians, right? So in that sense, they come around and say, well, progressivism never really existed because it's not really saying anything that is a fundamental critique, right? It's just a, a kind of at the edges movement for, um, you know, various social reforms or something like that. So um, it's quite striking the extent to which by the 1970s, some historians are saying outright that uh, there's no there there, there's nothing to see. Let's, you know, let's move along. Uh, we've, we've exhausted our study of progressivism and it's so consonant. Another way to put it is I think it's so consonant with the American political tradition. It's an uninteresting, uh, unreal phenomenon. Well, I was I was think one of the major contributions of your book is that you're so well versed in the history of philosophy as well that the ch the sections on William James and pragmatism, which you mentioned earlier, and John Dewey, those were really valuable and interesting to see what was going on in other spheres and the forming of of expertise in university settings. Were the progressives the first real school, and is there any that that in terms of the close nexus between? Uh, academia and the progressive movement was that was 
Was the New Deal built on that or was the New Deal separate that they weren't as university based as the progressives? Uh, yeah, I think that um, I think the New Deal is best understood as a, as a sort of practical outgrowth of um, the progressive revolution in thought. And of course, um, what happens in the New Deal is the, uh, you know, the smart people, the brain trusters really make a beeline for Washington in many cases uh, from the universities. But the universities themselves were the places where these ideas were being uh, incubated, as you know, universities still are the places where ideas are being incubated, and we're seeing the uh, some of the consequences of people running out from the universities and getting into uh, politics uh, right now. And this was, you know, really started to go on for the first time in American history, I would say, in a large scale way uh, with the with the New Deal. So, uh, yeah, these ideas are coming out of universities, and um, as I say, one of the Interesting things, I think, which is not uh, often commented on and which I deal with to some degree in my uh, book is the establishment of contemporary academic disciplines. I've mentioned the American Historical Association, but the American Economic Association was founded about the same time in the 1880s. The American Political Science Association, of which I am a member, was also founded a little later in the early 20th uh, century. These disciplines were founded by progressives, progressive intellectuals, in order to transmit the new progressive scientific understanding of things, whether it be in history, economics, uh, political science, uh, to scholars and eventually uh, to the masses. And of course, these disciplines now are sort of uh, these professional organizations are sort of adjuncts to uh, the universities. They operate in tandem. You know, if you're a professional political scientist, as I am, you are usually expected to be a member of the American Political Science Association. You go to their uh, meetings, um, uh, and those meetings are still, uh, you know, sorry, in their own updated way, they're still kind of progressive love fests for the most part, right? Um, so there's this sort of interpenetration of these semi-independent organizations and the universities, but this is something that really starts in the um, in the progressive era. I also, um, you know, I've, I've written other books on the progressive influences on constitutional uh, jurisprudence, and uh, one of the things I've uh, long argued is that the modern American law school, too, is a direct uh, outgrowth of progressive thinking. I mean, legal education in the 19th century used to be through you know, apprenticeship, practical experience, and so forth. You didn't, uh, you know, go to a progressive law school to to learn uh, law there. And by the early 20th century, law schools are popping up everywhere, and they're popping up on the progressive model to, again, emphasize the evolutionary character of law, right, to, um, it's still the case in law schools, um, not necessarily read the founder's constitution, merely read what the Supreme Court or other experts, right, have had to say about the Constitution. So um, when you think about it, history, economics, political science, law, the fundamental disciplines which define, in a way, the American polity were founded to transmit uh, progressive ideas. And they still they still do. And they interact very closely with um, uh, with the larger universities. Could you discuss a little bit the, uh, the, the influence of ideas? Was there any connection between the political theorists pushing back on progressivism and the and the denial of the role of the Constitution in American life with the rise of the Federal Society, or are those two distinct tracks? Uh, no, I think that um, in in some ways they are in, in some ways they are distinct. The Federalist Society is a group essentially of. Uh, 
of um, lawyers, law professors who are interested in um, especially the uh, the doctrine of constitutional originalism, right, or or uh, or textualism, trying to understand the Constitution's meaning according to its words and how those words were understood at the time they were uh, at the time they were adopted at the time they were uh, became formal law so in this sense it was uh, it was a movement or, or an organization and it's had some great successes in getting uh, you know sort of originalist uh, judges and justices appointed to our lower courts as well as the supreme court of the united states but it's very much concentrated on um, matters of law and legality and getting the right kind of um, judges appointed to, to the bench. The um, There is some overlap, although the kind of constitutional revisionism from the political theorists that I'm talking about uh, wasn't targeted necessarily at, uh, at law schools. It was a larger sort of historical philosophic uh, critique, which... Um, some some people within the Federalist Society are very um, you know interested in this, and there's a kind of natural consonance. Although the Federalist Society concerns are not, um, they're they're sort of more um, more targeted, if you will, at the idea of constitutional uh, originalism as as an interpretive uh, doctrine. So there's a lot of points of overlap, but um, the uh, the constitutionalist critique um, out of Claremont and uh, and, and other places grows up around the same time, but they're looking at the same phenomenon from, I would say, slightly different or a wider angle. Well, I was going to say that one of the, you mentioned earlier, the, the intrusion as, as, well, I'll read this quote. One of my claims is the idea is that as the idea of a fixed constitution disappeared as an object of study and eventually of public veneration, so did the realm of the private and the invisible. Could you discuss the, the connection between the growth of the, the well, the, the, the rejection of everything about the Constitution with the intrusion of the state into pretty private matters. Yeah, I mean, th this is a part of the book um, which um, I, I don't think has been written about before as much as it um, should be. And uh, one, of course, emphasis uh, that, I've, that I've had is the one we've been discussing, the progressives' constitutional critique, but another very vital and important part of early progressivism was the progressives' attempt to reconfigure Christianity or sort of reconstitute Christianity along worldly lines. Um, and I talk uh, about uh, some of the leading theologians, if you will, of the progressive movement, Walter Rauschenbusch on the Protestant side, Father John Ryan on the, on the Catholic um, side. Their view of Christianity was, was a view that called for the expansion of the state in the, in the name of you know, moral and theological progress. So you get a real sort of messianic Christian fervor that that animates, I think, the early progressives that somehow we can do the Lord's work, uh, right? Christianity demands that we deal with social problems, that we deal with uh, problems of uh, poverty and so forth. And the fervor, I think, of Christian progressivism was not like that of prior American religious awakenings, instead of concentrating on individual moral failings or the need for individual reformation, as I, I say in the book, um, Christian progressives concentrated their gaze almost exclusively on matters of social and economic justice. Now, of course, what eventually happens here is that 
I mean, the early progressives like like Walter Rauschenbusch and and and, uh, and Father John Ryan. I mean, I think they understood themselves to be genuine Christians. That they really did, I think, want to, as I say, reconfigure uh, Christianity towards secular purposes. But they understood themselves to be doing the Lord's work. What happens later in the 20th century, of course, is that God or or the theological dimension falls away entirely, and all you're left with is the state, right? But still that messianic fervor in contemporary liberalism that somehow, you know, if we believed in God, we would understand ourselves to be doing God's work. So, um, but the early progressives want to, you know, in a way use the kind of the state becomes the vehicle for the, uh, you know, for the work of, of uh, God. I, I call one chapter of the book, the real presence of Christ with a, with a, with a progressive spin, right? Christ is about earthly things as opposed to uh, things beyond this world. And um, you, you find um, Richard Ely too, I, I talk about in the book, he was a founder of the American Economic Association. He was also an armchair theologian. So bringing, you know, economics and Christianity uh, together. And he's all about, um, you know, what he calls social salvation, not individual salvation, but we will redeem the world through the power of Christianity. Now, of course, when Christianity comes to be about secular things and event eventually, right, it becomes purely a concern for secular things, right? The, uh, the, the theological dimension falls by the wayside. And when the, the state becomes that powerful, ironically, nowadays, we see the state interfering in the realms of conscience, right? Overtaking um, religion and religious institutions. So I think one of the irony of the early Christian progressives is, uh, you know, kind of along the lines of be careful what you wish for. They wanted in the name of Christianity to, to make the state larger and more powerful and do more things. And guess what? The state is doing things now which uh, undermine Christianity in the realm of conscience and the realm of the um, of the private. So um, it, it's this very interesting phenomenon of early progressivism being explicitly Christian, having a messianic fervor. Now we still have the messianic fervor of liberalism, but uh, we don't have the Christianity. Yes, I was going to say, do you think part of the reason that modern historians don't don't are not keen on progressivism is that is because of the Christian aspect of it that so much of the rhetoric and the the um, references were Christian based and that, that they don't that that's not something that the highly secularized left of today wants to can capitalize on is that is that a, is that a pro, one of the reasons for it or is it just because they were white male privileged Anglo-Saxon yeah. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. The historians don't much notice the, um, as I say, the constitutional critique, but those same historians also don't much notice what I call the reconfiguration or the reconstitution of, um, of Christianity as being um, central to this. I mean, you know, they're they're down as modern liberals are. They're down with the kind of the fervor, you know, behind you know the power of the state and the idea of uh, you know expertise and the confidence in 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 expertise and the sense that uh, you know they occupy the moral high ground. But now these are it's a kind of purely secularized moral high ground. They don't. Um, I think again the historians were out of their natural element in dealing with religious concepts, right? They they didn't talk much about the progressive historians that I'm talking about in the book. They didn't talk much about, um, uh, about these religious dimensions because it was kind of uh, alien to them. The, the early 
um, 20th century progressives, as I say, many of them were, were genuine. They understood themselves to be genuine Christians in a way that, you know, mid 20th century historians, let's say, didn't. So they were very much out of their element. Uh, they, they too were kind of, um, you know, peculiarities, right? How could you how could you blend, uh, you know, statism with uh, Christianity? Let's concentrate on the statism. The Christian stuff is too uh, too much out of our uh, out of our element. But uh, that's a very important um, part of the story. And the kind of secularization of progressive fervor is uh, something we still live with. Yes, I was really fascinated by your. I'd heard I'd heard of Walter Rauschenbusch before, but. He's a really rather chilling figure. I always thought of him as just, oh, the social gospel, and that was sort of benign. But it, it, he's, he's actually a rather sinister figure in your book. And he, you use this phrase and he, that he had a chilling phrase called collective enthusiasms. What did he mean by that? Yeah, um, he, uh, he was, I call him the, um, the theologian par excellence of uh, progressivism. And um you know he's addressing himself largely to the uh, to the churches, uh, Protestant uh, churches, which in his estimation were sort of calcified with their attachment to what individualism, right? Economic freedom, political freedom, uh, the uh, the bugaboos of the intellectual left, um, and his claim. He often went as far as to claim there is no escape to the afterlife, but through the purification of the present, you know, the realization of God's will on earth. So, you know, otherworldliness or the sense that uh, that uh, Christ was speaking about the next life, he says, no, and Christ is really speaking about this world. So, and he mixed this with, um, as all progressives did, including the, uh, the, the theologians, he mixed this with a kind of uh, casual Darwinian evolution, if you will, the idea that all things they are evolving and we have to keep up and the way we keep up with it is through uh, state power so very much a confidence that you know the kingdom of god can be brought about in this world or a kind of secular salvation through socialism through economic justice right he, these are the early uh, expositors of uh, you know the, the language of justice which we hear everywhere now uh, you know social justice economic justice environmental justice uh, they were very much uh, speaking in those terms and as I say the modern incarnations of that lose the theological dimension entirely they don't lose the moral self-righteousness but they lose the uh, the belief in uh, in God but in many ways I think when you make Christianity about the here and now it's kind of inevitable that uh, you know God falls out of the picture and um and uh, you know Rauschenbusch um even says uh, something like uh, Jesus himself was misinterpreted for for so long by people who uh, you know said he was he was saying that his kingdom was not of this world, right? Uh, it's socialized love that uh, we need in the present age. Jesus was really about this world as much or more than um, the next. And of course, this makes Rauschenbusch and the other Christian progressives very hostile to, again, the natural rights foundations of the American Republic, which wanted to limit in principle um, state power. So they're suggesting a kind of merger of church and state for left, let's say, socialist, or at least, uh, you know, a lot of economic uh, management uh, in mind. Um, and on the 
on the uh, Catholic side, uh, I've mentioned, I, I talk a lot about uh, Father John Ryan. They were yes, I'm so glad you mentioned him in the book because I'd never heard of him before. He was an interesting outlier in the fact that he was a Catholic among all these Protestants. And Yes, he was referred to by his mid-20th century biographer as the right reverend, the right reverend New Dealer. Well, he was uh, that was his name at the time, but uh, yeah, um, the right reverend New Dealer. Um, and, uh, you know, he's a a friend of Rauschenbusch, and he shares this and very influential in establishing, I think, the uh, the modern sort of social justice, if you will, dimension of uh, American Catholicism. Um, he shared Rauschenbusch's confidence that a new day is finally dawning in, in America. We, we now see the injustices of the economic system. Um, he claims that all language like all intelligent and disinterested persons believe X. In other words, you know, the liberal intelligentsia just knows this to be true and the rustics might not, but, um, you know, everyone has a moral claim to a decent uh, wage and the state has to be involved in uh, providing that. Um, and when he is a teacher at, uh, he teaches uh, at uh, St. Paul uh, Seminary, Rauschenbusch was up uh, in uh, Rochester at the uh, Theological Institute there. Um, he devotes um, a surprising amount of his uh, coursework in moral theology to what? Economic history, political economy, because this is where, um, you know, moral theology is really at in the progressive mind, right? It's about uh, managing the economy, managing uh, the the organs of the state, so it's a very you know nascently, if you will, secularized account of Christianity. Even though I, I mean, I, as I say, I think Father John Ryan understood himself uh, as a faithful Catholic, and uh, you know, trying to um, make Catholic social teaching, trying to make Christianity uh, relevant to uh, worldly purposes, and. Um, you know, so anything when, when Christianity moves in this direction, anything that's sort of not measurable or uh, manipulable by the state or by modern social science sort of falls by the wayside, right? That's why I say that it's this is ripe for secularization. The, the focus is so much on the world in the here and now that um, it's a kind of natural development of this, I think, that. Uh, that, uh, you know, uh, the theological component uh, falls away. So um, as I put it somewhere in the book, I think when the fullness of time was come, God sent the administrative state. Uh, this seems to be the new Christian uh, dispensation. And um, you see it on the Catholic side, you see it on the Protestant side. And again, by the time the historians are dealing with this, I don't think they're quite comfortable speaking about Christianity. So the the sort of pure statist element takes pride of place in their uh, historical accounts. At this point, I just want to remind listeners that we are talking today with Bradley C.S. Watson, the author of Progressivism, The Strange History of a Radical Idea. And I wanted to ask you, sticking with Ryan for just a moment, is he is he remembered at all or is he just because he was was it, how prominent was he in his day in, in the oh, public? He was, um, he was very prominent. He was um, he actually lived to see uh uh, some the, the New Deal reforms, unlike the earlier progressives, he was a little bit younger. He was very uh, prominent, uh, you know, sort of um, a kind of a formal and informal uh, policy advisor on the uh, on on the New Deal, and very well known in his day. And uh, I think is still um, quite well known among uh, those who uh, 
those who articulate, uh, let's say, Catholic um, social teachings on economic matters uh, in the United States. So, uh, yeah, he was a very, um, very influential figure and um, still still is, I think, in, in a way, um, these progressive notions now have been become so thoroughly imbued, I would say, in mainline churches on both the Protestant and Catholic side that uh, maybe some of the intellectual origins of them have been forgotten by, um, by uh, ordinary churchgoers, let's say, but by those who um, follow the development of Catholic social thought, he's a very influential figure. That's, that's, that's very useful to know. I wanted to say that it's it, another fascinating aspect of your book is that you talk about the fact that the well, I'll read it. These accounts you're talking about Henry Steele common commenter at this point. It is quite fascinating that you make the point that in these accounts, meaning of, of you mentioned Hofstadter and Hartz, Lewis Hartz, Henry Steele commenter, Daniel Borston, you write in these accounts, there was a peculiar mixture of understatement and triumphalism, something particularly noticeable in commenter progressive searing critique of a constitutional critique attracted little attention. I thought that was very interesting that they would understate the, the well, you mentioned just a moment ago that it became so imbued that there was no reason to to press the point of progressivism because it had won in the in the academic sphere. And could you talk about that, that peculiar mixture of understatement and triumphalism? I thought that was an interesting kind of oxymoron, oxymoronic phrase. It was rather yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, um, yeah. Understatement in the sense that, um, you know, the progressive movement was kind of a natural part of the evolutionary unfolding of America. It wasn't really, you know, radical, as I've said, but also triumphalism in the sense that um, it's now just so obvious that this is the way things had to be, that this outgrowth, that, you know, it, 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 it's, it's uh, hard... It's, it's hardly worth um, celebrating because it's kind of the natural order of things. I mean, Commager in particular, you know, says um, progressive reform rested on what? Sort of just common sense, right? Uh, inevitability. I mean, given the way the, uh, the uh, economic order was changing, the political order was changing in the early 20th century, um, uh, th there is... This this was the moderate, reasonable, sort of inevitable thing to do. And in that sense, it's just sort of triumphalist in the sense there's no reason to, um, um, you know, the, the, the history has unfolded exactly as it should. And that, his historian's understanding there, I, I think I say, coincides perfectly with the with the self-understanding or the logic of the phenomena and the subjects that he is describing, right? The progressives are kind of, um, you know, saying that these are the things that inevitably must come out of the American constitutional uh, order. Um, so it's very difficult for people like him, I think, to see the radicalism of the uh, of, of the early progressives. Um, um, yeah, yeah I'd like to, if, I could, if, if I could, I, I would just quote quote from your book on that point that you say the historians who looked who looked back on the progressive era tended to defang progressive ideas and arguments, making them appear more compatible with the American experience and constitutional order than they in fact were. I think that's I think that's what you're discussing here. It's is it's the fact that they said, oh, well, we'll just domesticate this. And the fact that Woodrow Wilson and Theodore Roosevelt in their own distinct, distinct ways wanted to just pretty much overturn the Constitution <laughs> in some ways. 
I mean, I wouldn't go that far, but they wanted to do to, to to neuter it in many ways. And what could you could you discuss too? In what what in particular did they? Were there particular articles or 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 um, doctrines within the Constitution that they just felt were ne- needed to be overthrown or 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 at least at least weakened? The, yeah, it's it's more than any particular uh, article. I think um, the founders' Constitution is grounded. Ultimately, I think, in the very Christian notion of original sin, that uh, men are but men uh, as they have always been. They are prone to um, they're they are prone to uh, abuse. They are prone to uh, abuse power. Uh, they are prone to uh, tyrannize over their uh, fellow human beings if if they can. So, what? you need to do, therefore, recognizing original sin, is to come up with a constitutional order that does not allow or, or, or tries to prevent the worst tendencies of human beings from routinely governing. And you do this through separation of powers. You do this through the large republic. You do this through the creation of deliberative institutions, uh, the Congress, especially uh, uh, the Senate, the once uh, you know appointed Senate, as opposed to uh, democratically elected Senate, um, you do this through a functioning electoral college. Whereas the, the at least the founders' theory would be the president is selected uh, as the person most uh, most preeminent in virtue, rather than just the most popular. So they're very worried about the natural tendency of people uh, to abuse power, and in times of Democratic times, of course, um, uh, you have to worry especially about the tyranny of the uh, of the majority. Um, so, this constitution, which tries to check power, is the thing in the progressive view that stands in the way of progress. The progressives are very confident that in the course of evolution, human beings themselves will evolve, have evolved to a point where the only plausible form of government, the only direction that history is going is in an increasingly democratic direction, small d democratic direction. And therefore what we have to do is clear the roadblocks, the obstacles to progress. And the biggest obstacle is the constitution itself, precisely because it separates powers, precisely because it tries to slow down radical change through deliberative uh, mechanisms, precisely because in a large republic, there isn't one dominant group, one dominant voice that can move the whole republic. There is a multiplicity of factions, as Madison says, that check each other. These things kind of slow down and introduce deliberation into government, which starts to drive the progressives crazy. And by the late 20th century, you have some you know, high-ranking officials, even including uh, you know, White House uh, officials who are very skeptical of separation of powers. They're, they are trying to figure out, practically speaking, how do we overcome this so that the power of the state can be brought to bear? So what who, who, who would be an example of that, of, of, with a name? Oh, um, I don't know if you, uh, I, I don't know if you remember um, uh, Lloyd Cutler. He was one of Jimmy Carter's, uh, you know, uh, top uh, advisors. He wrote it. He wrote a, a, a piece explicitly. I, I can't uh, bring it to mind now, but explicitly 
uh, criticizing separation of powers and uh, how this stands in the way of uh, you know the, um, the the positive purposes of the of the state. So these are kind of latter day, late twentieth century people who are explicitly channeling um, um, progressive political theory. And of course, um, Woodrow Wilson, one of the great uh, originators of American progressivism, in his early days wrote uh, explicitly for the replacement of the American constitutional system with something like a parliamentary system, whereby power is more concentrated in the hands of a powerful prime minister exercising party uh, discipline, and there's no rigid separation of the legislative branch from the executive branch. So they're thinking in the early going about ways to explicitly change the constitution later in his life when when he becomes president, he realizes that, uh, you know, short of major constitutional amendment, you can't do that. So he writes on uh, executive theories of presidential leadership, the president as a leader of men, as he calls, kind of leading the popular will, speaking over the heads of Congress to move the state forward in as rapid a fashion as he can, because he thinks the founders' constitution get in the way. So, And, fam- back, and famously, he tripped up when he went over the heads of the of the Senate on the League of Nations matter and tried to rally the people to him, and the people said, we don't want the League of Nations. Yes, yes, right. Um so um <laughs> a little bit of uh, a little bit of overreach and um so what the con- what the progressives are really suspicious about i think ultimately is the entirety of the founders constitution insofar as it recognizes the fallenness of man they are so confident that history itself history with a capital h uh, kind of overcomes that fundamental uh human fallenness so this is the sense in which i think progressivism even though it didn't necessarily recognize it. It was deeply at odds with, uh, you know, in, in a way, the most basic uh, teachings of Christianity when it comes to uh, man's relationship to man. Um, so, yeah, and, and of course, what happens later in the 20th century, because um, no organ of government, that is to say the executive branch, uh, can really concentrate power to the extent the progressives would like. What they start to do is shift their institutional allegiances. They're no longer all about concentrated executive power. They start to become fans of judicial power because that's the branch of government that can really bring expertise to bear and really tell uh, you know, the people where history is going, almost regardless of the words of the constitution, right? They will invent new rights that are not in the constitution. And that's where, you know, the Federalist Society, to go back to your earlier question, started coming in to um, push back against this, uh, you know, full-blown non-textual constitutionalism. The idea of a living constitution, as I've written in another book, um, is very much a progressive idea, an organic, growing, evolutionary thing, not a fixed thing. It becomes a kind of empty vessel into which progressives can pour their political concoction. So we're kind of stuck with the constitution because we can't formally amend it, or at least not easily amend it. So we come up, or the progressives come up with workarounds for that. And one of the major workarounds they come up with is judicial power, living const- the embrace of living constitutionalism, the words of the constitution just don't matter much anymore. What you really need are creative progressive justices uh, telling us what those words mean for the present day. So they're very suspicious of the whole founders constitution. And this has translated through to the judiciary, the body that we have come to believe is you know, the sort of main expositor of constitutional meaning. It's a very, very uh, pernicious thing, this growth of progressive thought. And the fact that we don't understand it uh, comes back again, I think, to the historians. 
Well, one of the thank you for that. That's very fascinating about the the fact that both sides are are now aware of how important the judiciary is, which is a little bit worrisome. Uh, what what you discuss in the book? Uh, well, you say in the book one thing that struck me was you say American progressivism was quintessentially American, and I wonder could you discuss what you mean by that? Well, um, I think it's fair to say that um, social Darwinism, this central element of uh, of uh, American that, that motivated the early progressives, uh, had more purchase. It had more uh, influence in the United States than uh, any other country. That is to say, the the application of Darwinian evolutionary concepts to um, society, to politics, to everything, right? Uh, the idea that not only organic creatures were in a state of evolution and, uh, you know, struggle for the next stage of growth, but that social institutions, constitutions um, are kind of engaged in the same sort of evolutionary growth. So this uh, in the social sphere, as I say, is a rejection of any constitutional order that is premised on some notion of nature, fixed human nature, because the Darwinists don't believe there is such a thing as fixed human nature. This was very influential in the United States, more so even than European countries. Add to that, um, the if there is one sort of indigenously American philosophic system. It is uh, pragmatism as invented by uh, William James and, and others and John Dewey and, and, and many others, uh, which emphasizes the need for experimentation, the rejection of the idea that any social situation or any social institution um, is permanent or should, let's say, constrain human behavior. We need to free human behavior to kind of see where uh, where the most productive changes will uh, will occur. Um, American progressivism also, of course, has elements of German uh, uh, state theory, but uh, th that's given sort of extra oxygen and extra oomph by these distinct <laughs> American doctrines of social Darwinism and pragmatism. So, yes, thank you. I was going to ask you about the German German thinkers, and was Wilson unusual in the in his in his employment of them, or or and who and what thinkers did he draw upon? Yeah, German, I mean, German thinkers. I Wilson sort of freely blends in many places both um, Darwinian language of explicit references to Darwin, but also Hegelian language. So the the kind of major thinker in the German uh, tradition is uh, is uh, Hegel, who was a very um, difficult, uh, you know, and, and sometimes impenetrable thinker, but. Wilson sort of channels uh, Hegel, and you know Wilson himself is educated by people who are uh, educated in uh, in uh, Germany. The, the the influence of German thinking on the foundation of American universities is very uh, uh, important in the late nineteenth century. Um, Johns Hopkins is the first university founded in the United States explicitly on the German research model and the. Um, you know, the early political seminars at Hopkins are very much, um, you know, influenced by uh, Hegelian, uh, Hegelian thinking. So Wilson sort of channels this and tries to, I think, Americanize it, if you will, in some ways. I mean, he says, he claims the state is changing, growing, moving in history. And again, his Darwinism blends with his, his Hegelianism there. And, um, but also he's uh, you know concerned about 
what is the role for popular or democratic will? Because he recognizes in some way this is significant uh, in the American case, maybe more significant than it is for the Germans. So he starts um, musing in the direction that uh, somehow the the leader of the state, the president in the case of the United States, uh, reads, channels public opinion at a very high level, and then translates that opinion down through a professional bureaucracy, which then directs the affairs of state. And as I said earlier, he's also trying to balance that, you know, reading of public opinion with not having the rustics directly handling the delicate machinery, right? So he wants to blend administrative science with some notion of a kind of general will of the uh, of the people. It's uh, in some ways, um, you know, peculiar from an American point of view. It would have been unrecognizable from the founders' point of view, who were simple, you know, Republicans, small R uh, uh, Republicans. They were trying to figure out mechanisms from for uh, you know consensual, stable consensual government. They wouldn't have recognized this sort of German state theory and this evolutionary theory that. Um, uh, that Wilson brings to bear. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's a very peculiar effort to blend um, some reading of the popular will by a by a statesman, by a leader, an expert, as you will, in reading the popular will and translating that popular will through bureaucratic mechanisms rather than through Republican consensual or you know accountable uh, mechanisms. Well, we're getting towards the end of the interview because I know I promised that I wouldn't keep you all day, but I did want to ask you one of the things that's fascinating in the book is that uh, Theodore Roosevelt seemed perfectly willing to trash the Constitution if he could empower himself, and opposed to you were just discussing the, the importance of the state, but he seemed to be centered on the state is me. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, do you think that Republicans these days should disassociate them? There's a lot of her- sort of mindless hero worship of Theodore Roosevelt. Do you think that they should look more closely at him? And yeah, I don't think that um, I don't think Teddy Roosevelt is a particularly good uh, model for the contemporary uh, Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know that he, you know, in his own mind. I mean, he certainly wasn't averse to, I mean, he lived the strenuous life that he wrote about. He was a remarkable figure, one of the most interesting figures in American uh, uh, history, I think, for the sheer energy and uh, and uh, multifaceted nat- uh, nature of his exertions. Um, I don't know if he saw him trying to, if he saw himself as aggrandizing himself. What he did want to do, though, was um, kind of figure out ways to energize to cultivate a kind of, uh, you know, energetic, positive national state, right? He was very much in the progressive mold in that sense. And, um, you know, as he was an energetic figure, so the state should have a kind of similar manly uh, energy. I don't know that this is a direction that the, the contemporary Republican Party uh, wants to go in. It's certainly not, again, something the founders would have um, recognized, given their um, suspicion, uh, I think, of uh, of not, um, not legitimate energy, but uh, let's say energy untethered from uh, the constraints of separation of powers, which seems to be the direction that uh, Roosevelt and other progressives uh, were were moving in. Yeah, I certainly would say that Lincoln was was a manly figure, but he was not ostentatious about it. He was just a quiet, quiet, cerebral, but 
but macho figure as well. I mean, he led a, a predictorious army in a way that, that Roosevelt never did. Very, uh, very much so. Um, Lincoln, I mean, what you find in Teddy Roosevelt that you, you don't find in Lincoln is this sort of, uh, you know, this almost artificial cult of masculinity and striving and, uh, and uh, you know, that he wanted to somehow inject into politics. Lincoln's orientation is regrounding the nation in the founding principles, which is a... Uh, which is certainly a statesmanlike and uh, you, you might say um, uh, virtuous or, or, or a kind of a forceful uh, manliness behind that. But um, it's looking backward to the founding generation, whereas the progressives always look forward, ever forward to where history is taking us next. That's a very helpful insight. And with that, I would, oh, I'd like to ask you now the traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Oh, what am I working on now? It's a very good question. I am uh, increasingly uh, interested in um, in uh, the way in which I think some particular strains of modern conservatism, or or you know, people, let's say, on the political right, or often identified to be on the political right, have uh, kind of co-opted the statism of the early uh, progressives. I have a piece coming out uh, actually at Law and Liberty uh, uh, shortly on how. Um, the contemporary uh, integralist movement, which you might have heard of, which uh, wants to um, wants to reinvigorate the power of the administrative state, but for you know supposedly conservative or at least non-progressive uh, purposes, I think uh, wittingly or unwittingly draws on or parallels early progressive confidence that this can be done without risk. I think this is a big mistake. I think. Uh, uh, the integralist movement is really uh, would like to take the um, political right in a very uh, dangerous direction. So I'm kind of thinking about those things right now. And as I say, I have a piece coming out on the website Law and Liberty on that very topic. Well, that's very, very helpful. I, I know that I know what you mean about the integralist, because when I read Adrian Vermeule's tweets, I think this man is very enamored of European aristocrats. And that doesn't really appeal to me as a modern American person. Well, with that, I will just thank the author we've been talking to today, Bradley C.S. Watson, author of Progressivism, The Strange History of a Radical Idea. And thank you, Brad. Thank you, listeners. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks, Hope. Bye.